Let's try it where I'll say he is risen and you answer in whatever language that you learned earlier or maybe whatever language you know. All right. So it'll just be this cacophony of, of different languages all at the same time. Kind of like the first church at, uh, at Pentecost. All right. So let's try it. So if you know French, say he's risen indeed in French. If you know Creole, say it in Creole. If you know Mandarin or Cantonese or, or you barely know English, like Sean said earlier or whatever, uh, I'll say he is risen, and then you answer with he is risen indeed. And I expect to hear uh, Augustine with the patwa back there, all right? No, I'm just kidding. All right, okay, ready? So I'll say he is risen, then you say he is risen indeed. He is risen. That was cool. All right, let's try it again. He is risen. Awesome. That is so cool. I think um, uh, that is what the first church sounded like on the day of Pentecost, about 2,000 years ago. That is what the church in heaven sounds like now as they're celebrating the resurrection today. And that is what the church in heaven is going to look like when you and I take our place among the redeemed one day and worship Jesus for all eternity in every language that you could imagine. Whether it's Farsi, whether it's Mandarin, whether it's English, or whether it's Southern. I'm from the South, so we talk a little different down where I'm from. Today is Easter, right? So the title of my message today is Easter Changes Everything. Easter Changes Everything. I'd like us to look at John chapter 20. I'll have the verses on the screen, but if you happen to have a copy of God's Word, maybe on your phone or... In front of you, you can look at John chapter 20, uh, but if you don't have it in front of you, that's okay. All the words will be on the screen. Okay, so we're going to cover about seven or eight verses today. We're going to talk to you about how Easter changes everything. Now, Mary. Let me stop right there. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus, okay? There's like three or four different Marys uh, in the New Testament. So this one is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, who was called Magdalene. Okay, so this is Mary Magdalene. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus's body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him And I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father to my God. And your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. 
And she told them that he had said these things to her. 365 days. How many days are in a year, right? Some days, if we're honest, we like more than others. We like holidays because we don't have to go to work. We like weekends because some of us, our shifts make it where we don't work on weekends. We like parties and celebrations. Many of you look forward to Super Bowl Sunday every year because you know what you're going to do. You're going to grab some wings. You know, on Super Bowl Sunday uh, this past year, I read there was like a billion pounds of wings eaten on Super Bowl Sunday. That is a whole lot of wings. People circle that date on their calendar. It's a special day to them. Of course, a lot of us, probably all of us, observe one special day a year called our birthday, right? Now, I've long wondered why we celebrate birthdays. Has the thought ever occurred to you? Is it that you're, you're excited because you managed to make it another year or like, hey, look at me, I made it. Um, I don't know why, but, uh, but we celebrate these birthdays every year. But when you strip all of the parties away, all of the celebrations away, all of the, the holidays and the excitement that I don't have to go to work today, when you strip all of that away, each of these days is fundamentally just like all the others. Each of these 365 days is the same. But the day that we've gathered to observe today is unique. It is a day that is unlike any other. Because Easter changes everything. In the passage before us, Easter changed everything for Mary Magdalene. And if we'll let God... Easter will change everything for us as well. I think that this story, which is a true account from the life of this woman called Mary of Magdalene. We don't know a whole lot about her from the Bible, but this story is a gripping one. And I tried to put myself in her shoes this week as I was pondering this passage. And I think that we see... Three different ways from her life in which Easter changed everything for her. And you have to understand, the scene opens where she is standing outside of this empty tomb. Now, in the Christian understanding of things, the the tomb is empty because Jesus has risen from the dead. Let me stop right there. Maybe you're you're not familiar with Christianity, or maybe you are familiar with Christianity, but you're not sure that you want to identify with it. And I want to say to you that that's okay. I'm glad you're here with us today. I'm glad that you are exploring the claims of Jesus. What I want is for Mosaic to be that safe place where each of us, coming from any background imaginable, can explore who Jesus is. But I'm a follower of Jesus. So I'm going to approach this text and every other from the perspective of one who follows Jesus. Mary Magdalene was also a follower of Jesus. That's why her world had been wrecked on Good Friday. If you back up and read John chapter 19, right before this text, you see that Mary was standing at the foot of the cross. Mary witnessed all the trauma and the horror that we know from from history goes in to one of these ancient Roman executions. It was a terrible death, one that uh, was reserved for common criminals. In fact, 
secular historians tell us that this type of execution was so popular back in ancient Rome that you could look out certain days and see the hillsides just littered with crosses. Dozens upon dozens of people being executed in these mass executions on crosses. But as horrible as that was, it's a little bit easier when it's not somebody you know. To say, oh, well, that's, yeah, that's bad, but it's somebody else. But Mary's world had been wrecked because she stood at the foot of this particular cross to watch her friend die. So then a couple of days later, on what Christians call Easter or Resurrection Sunday, she is standing outside the tomb. The passage tells us that she and a couple of other people had come and they were bringing about 75 pounds worth of um, perfume and incense to anoint the body. Uh, you know, we have certain customs, right? When somebody dies and they're in a, in a funeral home, if they're not being cremated, if they're going to be buried, we, we embalm them. We put certain things on them and it makes the body appear and smell and all that stuff and makes it as beautiful as possible. And so people come through and they pay their last respects. But of course, 2,000 years ago, the technology was different. So what they had to do is they had to come to the tomb with pounds and pounds and pounds of, of spices and perfumes and all of these different things that they were going to literally take the body with. They were, she was coming to take Jesus' body so that it would smell and appear beautiful for as long as possible. She is showing the ultimate sign of respect to her dead friend. But she shows up, and we start the passage in verse 11, when she's standing outside the tomb crying. The reason she's crying is because the tomb is empty. And her natural assumption is that somebody has taken the body of my friend. His grave has been plundered. Now, obviously, Jesus wasn't very popular in Jerusalem. At this moment in history, there were conspiracies flying around. That was the whole thing that led to his death. So she assumed that some of these, these uh, Jewish leaders or, or Roman soldiers had perhaps secreted away the body of Jesus. So she stands outside the tomb and she is crying. I think this passage shows us three ways in which Easter changes everything. The first way is that Easter redeems our past. Easter redeems our past. Look at what happens. As uh, she stands outside the tomb crying, there are these two angels seated there in white. Now, if you're not familiar with the world of the Bible, angels and spirits and all of that can seem kind of bizarre and distant from 21st century New York. And perhaps you're a little skeptical. I believe with all of my heart in this invisible world that the Bible describes, a world full of angels and demons. I really don't have any problem believing in that because I accept a whole lot of supernatural things. I accept, for instance, the idea that a man who was once dead could now live. If you believe in that, you can believe in anything that God tells you. But these two men... These two angels dressed in white, they are seated where Jesus' body had been. And they ask her, they say, woman, why are you crying? 
And she said, they have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they put him. And so then she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't recognize her friend. Why is that? Well, I think probably Jesus had gotten uh, a new body, a resurrected body, one that probably looked a whole lot like his old body, but in some unique ways was very different. And so whether he's shrouded in glory or I don't, I don't know, but she looks at him and she does not know who he is. She thinks he's the garden because Jesus's tomb was in a garden. That's why we call it the garden tomb. So she says, excuse me, sir, do you know where they have carried him away? Tell me where you have put him. She assumes because he's in charge of the garden. He must have done it. Tell me where you put my friend's body and I'll go get him. I will do the work. Me and my friend, we will carry this dead body up this hill. We will, we will carry these 75 pounds of spices to anoint him. We will do the hard work involved in honoring our friend. She's laying it all on the line there, begging and crying to this gardener. She doesn't realize she's talking to her friend. And then Jesus says one word. He says her name. He says, Mary. And as he utters that one word, there is a a flood of emotions and the Holy Spirit of God opens her eyes and everything comes back to her and she realizes that she is looking into the eyes of her dearly beloved friend. Not just her dearly beloved friend, but a dearly beloved friend who was dead a couple of days ago. And she cries out in a moment of epiphany. She cries out, Rabboni! The ancient Jews spoke Aramaic, and this is the Aramaic phrasing, which means rabbi, which means teacher. I think what we see in this two-word exchange, and it's only a two-word exchange, Jesus says Mary, she says rabbi. That's all they say, at least initially. But in this two-word exchange, I think it is poignant because it traffics in everything that has come before In their relationship. Why is Mary so emotional in this moment? Certainly she's lost a friend. But she's lost more than a friend. She's lost someone who redeemed her. The Gospel of Luke chapter 8 and verse 2. Tells us the backstory, The origin story. Of Mary Magdalene. According to the Bible. She was a woman possessed by seven demons. There we are, back again at this invisible world of angels and demons. If you're not sure about that, just hang on with me, all right? She's possessed by seven demons and is set free, is liberated by this man called Jesus, who then becomes one of her closest friends. And she dedicates the rest of her life to following this man around and her and some of these other ladies and And these 12 apostles, they follow Jesus around for years, three years to be exact, devoting their lives to this man, to this friend. Wouldn't you follow Jesus if you had been set free like that as well? 
To be possessed by a demon means to be in bondage, to be in slavery, to know no freedom. That was her life. She had no freedom of choice, could not exercise her own will, struggling in in the slavery to her own sinful choices. One thing I want to say is that it's a, it's a myth, perhaps you've heard this myth, actually a medieval uh, Catholic myth, that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. The Bible never says that. Um, that's a myth that got started, it's quite popular on the internet, but it's not in the Bible. So um, maybe it's true, but I can only go on what the Bible says, because that's my authority. But what we do know from Scripture is that this woman, prostitute or not, was a woman who was in slavery. A woman who had no sense of freedom. A woman who had no sense of hope. She was desperate. She was without God. She was far from God. But then God showed up in the person of Jesus. And in one verse, Luke 8, verse 2, he sets her free. He liberates her. He redeems her. Why was Mary so emotional when she's standing at the tomb? Why was she so emotional when she looked into Jesus' eyes and he said that one word, Mary? And she said, Rabbi? Because everything from her past comes flooding back into this one moment. And she understands that her past has been worth something. That Jesus has taken all of her pain. He's taken all of her sinful choices. And he is in the process of redeeming them through his death. And through his resurrection. We all, like Mary, we have baggage. Maybe we've not been demon possessed by seven demons like she was. But every one of us comes face to face with God and we bring a certain set of baggage. Maybe it's our brokenness. Maybe it's our our shame. Maybe it's our pain. Maybe it's the sinful choices that we have made. We like to call them mistakes. We we like to call them, you know, just poor decisions. The Bible uses the category of sin to describe those decisions that we make that are contrary to God. But what Mary understood as she stood face to face with her risen friend, a friend who was dead and who was now alive, is that Jesus could redeem past. All of that pain, all of that brokenness, all of that sin that was in her life, it was in her past. She was leaving it in the past and Jesus was redeeming it. Jesus was making something beautiful out of her life. He was redeeming her past. And she stands there and he says, Mary. And she cries out, Rabbi, my teacher, my friend. Jesus redeems our past. You may be sitting here. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus. You're you're like, I would call myself a Christian. And I still feel like I have a ton of baggage from my past that I'm having trouble getting over. The resurrection teaches us that Jesus redeems our past. Because of Easter, it is redeemed. There is value. 
Jesus creates value from our brokenness, from our ugliness, from our sinfulness, and he creates glory for himself and good for our lives through the cross and through the resurrection. Maybe you're here and you're not sure that you'd identify as a Christian. You're not sure that you would identify as a follower of Jesus. And I would say that's okay. You're in the right spot for us to have a conversation about who Jesus is. But what I would say to you is no matter what level of pain and brokenness and sinful decisions that you have made that perhaps have wrecked your life, just like Mary Magdalene, redemption is possible through the cross and through that empty tomb. That's exactly why Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross to bear our sin and our guilt and our shame. The Bible says that he became our sin offering. Mary Magdalene did not understand this when she was standing at the foot of the cross on Good Friday. She did not understand that her friend was God in the flesh and that he was literally becoming a sin offering for us. But the Bible teaches that there was this great transaction that occurred. That Mary Magdalene's sin was put upon Jesus. And Jesus' perfection and his righteousness was put upon Mary. And then God, the Father, judged Jesus for Mary's sin so that Mary could be viewed in God's eyes as one who is righteous. It's a great transaction. But the cool thing is, it's not just Mary's story. It's your story and my story, potentially, as well. Easter redeems our past in the sense that we can recognize that we are in this story if we choose, like Mary, to embrace the rabbi, to embrace the teacher, the one who wants to liberate us from our sin, our slavery, and our shame. The one who wants to look into our eyes with tenderness and say our name, much as he did with Mary. Easter redeems our past. Let's keep looking in the passage. Not only does Easter redeem our past, Easter provides hope for the future. Look at verse 17. She rushes Jesus. She is so emotional, so excited. She starts grabbing onto him. And Jesus says in verse 17, do not hold on to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This verse kind of strikes me as a little bit weird, a little bit odd. But Mary is incredibly emotional. Put yourself in her shoes. You'd probably be that way too. How many of you, if you saw your friend dead a couple days ago, And then suddenly you saw them alive. Don't you think you'd rush them? Don't you think you'd throw your arms around them? You'd kiss them on the cheek. You'd hug them. You'd you'd squeeze them. You'd, You'd be so excited that your friend is alive. And Mary rushes Jesus. She, she's most likely, as the, as the disciples frequently did, she's probably throwing herself at, at his feet, clinging to his feet. It was a, it was a common Jewish expression of devotion 2,000 years ago. It was what they did, okay? It's like, you know, uh, different cultures have different ways of expressing devotion to one another. That was the way that the Jewish people did it 2,000 years ago. That's most likely what she's doing in this moment. She's kneeling, prostrate before Jesus, grabbing his feet and worshiping him. Devoted 
to him. And Jesus says, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers. That's the apostles. See, they have become, through the cross, not just followers of Jesus, not just disciples. They've become family. Go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus here is hinting at a future, a glorious future that is in store for Mary and for the rest of God's family. Now, Mary doesn't get it yet. Mary doesn't get it yet, but she's standing with Jesus talking and Jesus said, hey, there's no need to hold on to me right now. I'm going to be around for a little while. It is not yet time for me to ascend to my father. I will, but not yet. I will go back to my father and your father, to my God and to your God, but not yet. Jesus knew, and Mary did not, but Jesus knew that he was going to hang around earth for about 50 days or so. 40 days, I think, before he would go back to heaven, before he would ascend to the Father. And what Jesus would do when he would go back to the Father, the Bible describes at the end of the gospel accounts how Jesus would ascend to the Father with a promise to return. What Jesus is hinting at here is this first hint that he is coming back. That he's coming back. You see, Easter doesn't just redeem our past. Easter provides hope for the future because what Jesus was laying down in this moment was this first idea that this was not it. This was just the first chapter in the story of Jesus. This was just the first chapter in the story of Jesus' family. Jesus was going to ascend to his father where he would advocate for his people, his family, and he would one day return to welcome them into his home, to make this earth his home, his paradise, to make his presence known among the peoples of the earth. I think that's what Jesus is hinting at here, just ever so slightly. Mary, you've had a past. A broken, brutal, ugly past. But I have redeemed that. And now, Mary, you have a future. Because I'm going to ascend to heaven and I'm going to pray for you every day. The Bible says that Jesus prays for his children, prays for those who are in his family. He advocates for us. Mary, I am going to ascend to the right hand of my Father, my God and your God. And oh, yeah, that's just the beginning. Because that ascension guarantees that I'm going to come back and I'm going to establish my everlasting kingdom, a world in which there will be no pain. There will be no injustice. There will be no poverty. There will be no racism. There will be no warfare. There will be no broken families. There will be no orphans crying out for justice. It will be paradise because Jesus will be the perfect ruler. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords who will reign over the nations, the Bible says, with a rod of iron. He'll set up shop in City Hall and he will do a magnificent job. And the governments of the world will be upon his shoulders. And of his kingdom, the Bible says, there will be no end. He doesn't explain all of that to Mary in this moment. He just gives this little hint of it. The rest of the Bible kind of unfolds that continuing story of Jesus and his family. 
But he hints to Mary that there is more to come. Because Easter does not just redeem our past. Easter provides us with hope for the future. The Apostle Paul would later describe Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of that which is to come. Now, I had a little trouble understanding that until when I was 16 years old, I got my first job. My first job was I worked on a blueberry farm. Uh, and um, that was what I did as a 16-year-old. And I remember being out in the fields and looking, and it was, it was a big commercial operation. I mean, we, we shipped to um, Japan. Well, most of our berries went to Japan and Europe. Uh, we were shipping all around the world. It was a very high-end production. And I remember going out into the fields, and you see these blueberries at the very beginning. Maybe we haven't even picked the first day of berries. And what you would see is this little white film, this little white powder that would be coating all of the berries. And you would know that that meant that they were ready, that there was about to be more. It was so exciting to be able to go out into those fields and see this visible, tangible sign that these are just the first fruits. This guarantees that these bushes are healthy and they will produce much fruit. So that what you're picking today, what I was packing and shipping off to Japan or wherever, it was just the first fruit. It was a sign, it was a down payment that there was more to come. It was a guarantee that there would be more berries. That's a metaphor that Paul borrowed to explain that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits. Jesus rose from the dead. And because he did, he serves as the first fruits to remind us all that those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are followers of Jesus, will also rise again. Jesus looks at Mary and he hints that there is more to come. What she may or may not have understood is that part of what was to come would involve her future resurrection. Her resurrection to enjoy this kingdom of God that I've just described, this place of perfection and justice and peace. The Bible describes that because of the cross, because of that great exchange which I described earlier, that we can embrace that by faith and we can ask Jesus to be our Lord and our Savior. And our future can be guaranteed as Mary's was. And the Bible doesn't describe hope in this sense of, man, I hope it works out. I, I hope my team you know, wins the NBA finals or, or I, I hope that my favorite presidential candidate wins this year. It's not that kind of hope. Hope in the Bible is, is, a, is a word that describes absolute, rock-solid confidence. You know, on the basis of who God is, you know that you can bank on this. That's why Paul said it's first fruits. Jesus rose. He conquered death for all of us so that if we are in Jesus if we have entrusted our eternal souls to him on the basis of this great transaction that has occurred, if we have entrusted our souls to Jesus, we can bank on this idea that we will rise to, to enjoy this eternal kingdom that God promises. Easter redeems our past. Easter provides hope for the future but Easter also invests our present with meaning. Easter invests our present with meaning. Look at verse 18. 
At the end of her brief encounter with her friend, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, and she said, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary suddenly has a new purpose for her life. Mary suddenly has a new reason for existence. Mary suddenly has a new mission that motivates her. Her life has been changed irrevocably because of Easter. Because she had a friend who was dead and is now alive. You see, Easter invests our present with meaning. It's not just that our, our past can be cleaned up by Jesus and, and our future is guaranteed and we have hope for some distant time. No, it's now too. My, my life can have meaning and purpose in the here and now. That's what happened for Mary. Mary said, or Jesus said, Mary, so I got something for you to do right now. Why don't you go back, meet with the disciples and tell them what you have seen. And it's as if he breathes onto her this new sense of purpose, this new sense of destiny, this new sense of mission, this new sense of meaning. What does she do? What, what would you do? If you had a friend who was dead and then came back to life and says, I've got something for you to do, you'd probably do it, right? Mind blown, you would go do it. That's what Mary does. She goes back. She meets with the disciples. She tells them exactly everything that Jesus has said. You see, our lives have meaning and significance only when they are centered around this good news that Mary was beginning to come to grips with on this day. Now, let me, let me say what I'm not saying so there's no confusion here. I'm a pastor, right? So part of my, my job, my mission in life is to do what Mary did in this verse, to go tell people about Jesus. And what I am not saying is that for your life to have meaning and significance and purpose, you have to go be a preacher or a missionary or a pastor or something like that, and you have to spend your entire day telling people about Jesus. And I think it's a great thing to tell people about Jesus. Obviously, I have dedicated my life to him. But I think what we learn from Mary in this moment is even more deeper and more fundamental than that. What Mary was doing in this moment was orienting her entire life around the good news. In this moment, Mary becomes a good news person, a person whose life is transformed by the good news, a person who now centers her life upon the good news, the good news that her friend was dead, but now he's alive, and he gives meaning and hope and purpose in a world of chaos and anarchy and despair. You see, the point is not that we're all supposed to go be missionaries or pastors. We're supposed to devote our lives to telling people about Jesus. Yeah, that's great. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you should tell people about Jesus. But it's even deeper than that. What Mary does is she centers her life around this good news. So whether you're in education or whether you're in nursing or whether you're a student, whether you're in IT, you center your life. You orient your perspective, your frame of mind. Everything is centered around this transformational good news. That's what happens to Mary. Her life has been changed. And now she has purpose. Now she has meaning. Now she has significance because her life is centered upon this good news. That her friend, Jesus the Christ, provides. 
So I guess the question that we have to ask ourselves is quite simply, has Easter changed everything for us? Have you met Jesus? We probably all come face to face with certain expressions of who Jesus is, whether it's in the media, whether it's from a friend that you have that was a Christian and told you about Jesus. Maybe they left a good impression, maybe they left a bad impression. We have a lot of convoluted ideas about who Jesus is, but we have all come face to face, no doubt, with some revelation, some truth about who he is. So the question then becomes, are we changed as a result? Has Easter changed everything for you? Mary Magdalene could not walk away on that Easter Sunday the same person that she was before. I don't know what happened with her for the rest of her life. The Bible doesn't tell us, and history's kind of silent on some of those details. But I'm pretty sure that Mary spent her life in whatever vocation she had. I know it was different for women 2,000 years ago. She didn't necessarily have a job, but however she lived, I'm sure that she devoted her life. She centered it upon this good news because she had been changed. Easter changes everything. It redeems our past, provides hope for the future, and it invests our present lives with meaning and with significance. Has Easter changed everything for you? Maybe you've come in today and you're a, a follower of Jesus. You're, you're cool with the label Christian. But I think it's fair that we should ask ourselves if we are continually being changed by this good news that Mary embraced in this moment. Because it should have continual, long-lasting change, effects in our lives. I should not be the same person today that I will be in five years. Hopefully, I'm different. Hopefully, the, 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 the process of change and transformation continues because the gospel, this good news, the Bible teaches us it's powerful. It changes us. Jesus changes us. That same power that kicked that rock out of the way of the, of the tomb is the same power that is available in our lives to transform us day by day. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're the same that you were 10 years ago, maybe it's time to look in the mirror. Maybe it's time to ask yourself if you're really a follower of Jesus or maybe it's time to say, what do I need to do? To take my relationship with Jesus to the next level. Because Easter's supposed to change something. Maybe you're here today and you're not cool with the label Christian. You're not sure about the Bible. You're not sure about Jesus. What I would simply say is this. Easter can change your life. Jesus can change your life. That great exchange that I described, where Jesus is on the cross and he bore Mary's sins and he, he took yours as well, he took mine and he was judged. And then his perfection was applied to your account if you will accept it by faith. Most religions in the world teach that the way that you are cool with God is by doing good things. If you do enough good deeds... You'll be cool with God and he'll let you into the afterlife. 
But Christianity is pretty much unique among all the religions of the world. And then it says, no, God loves us in spite of the fact that we can never do anything good enough to please him. The point of the cross is unconditional love that is poured out for us. Where God takes my sin, your sin, and he puts it upon his son, Jesus, and he judges him in our behalf. We don't get into heaven. We don't get into this kingdom of God that I've described by being a good person because none of us actually can be a good person. Instead, we get into heaven by faith. We ask Jesus to save us. We ask him to bring us into his family. And that's a, that's a, that's a prayer that he always answers. I'd like to conclude with a video. I believe it's a four-minute video. I have something very briefly to say after the video, but I would encourage you to reflect on this.